0: Alright, tell me one. All right, so open up to the book of Joel, chapter two, uh, chapter one. All right, and as you see on your handout, if you have, hopefully you have one. Um, we got three chap. We got three chapters. You thought it'd be easy, three chapters. Like, hey, hey, no problem. Right, <laughs> three chapters. The Lord was like, you think that's no problem? Wait to get to Obadiah, but anyway. Uh, Three chapters, 73 verses, 2,033 words, no problem. Uh, The author is Joel, and um, actually, according to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 16, Peter actually points to Joel as the author of the book of Joel. He says this was spoken by the prophet Joel. Um, Approximately 800 B.C. is when he's preaching and prophesying. And actually, very little is known about Joel. Really, one sentence is given about him. Look at verse 1, right? The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of um, Pethuel. That's it. There's nothing else about him in the whole book. We really don't know anything about Joel. Uh, he is suspected to be a contemporary of Elisha. Um, that's, again, that's speculation. I wouldn't like die on that hill. Uh, he is prophesying um, before the exile okay so he's prophesying this is a pre-captivity book alright he's probably 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 prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah um, remember Hosea is preaching to the northern tribes of, of Israel and Ephraim and he is prophesying to the southern kingdom uh, his name means Joel it's a cool name uh, if you're a Superman person, you're thinking Joel. No, I'm not saying that. Um, the Lord is God. That's what, it, that's what his name means. That's a pretty powerful name. Um, his father's name, um, what is it? Uh, Pethuel means the mouth of God or the persuasion of God. And one of you preacher guys, probably there's a message in there somewhere, just those two names. The mouth of God, the Lord is God, something about that. Um, but what's really going on? Let's go verse 4. Let's look at this historically. That which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. So historically, Joel is talking about this plague of insects. and There's lots of thoughts about what this was. Was there a real plague of insects and he was using it as a type? I don't know about any plague of insects that happened in Israel's history, so I'm not going to speculate on that. But he's talking about this plague of insects that is a precursor for Israel's restoration. And uh, if you notice, the reason why I'm inclined to not think he's talking about a literal plague of insects is verse 2 and 3. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers, He's kind of saying, what I'm telling you, did this ever happen before? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. So it sounds like he's talking about something that is prophetic, not something that happened. He's saying, hey, this never happened, but tell your kids about it. All right. So in Exodus chapter 10, so what I'm saying is he starts off by talking about this plague of insects, which has prophetic significance. Why? Because that's the precursor to Israel's restoration. These locusts. Think about it. Think about the past. Exodus chapter 10, there is a plague of locusts before God delivers Israel from Pharaoh. Amen? We all read that in Exodus 10. Good. Think future with me now. Revelation chapter 9, there is a plague of some freaky kind of locusts that come out of the bottomless pit, what? Before the Lord delivers Israel from the Antichrist, who is typified by Pharaoh. So that which has been is that which is to come, right? The picture is there. So that's why it's such a big deal. At Joel, in these plague of locusts, he's prophesying the battle of Armageddon and the second advent. That's what this plague of locusts and this plague of insects is all about. So that's historically what's going on. Spiritually, look at verse 5. Spiritually, the backsliding of Israel parallels the apostasy of the church. We learn a lot from Israel, don't we? Verse 5. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So there he is telling the children of Israel... Hey, wake up, get off the drunk of the drink of this world. Hey, doesn't the Lord say things like that to the church? Ephesians 5, awake to righteousness and sin not. Uh, I think that's 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, Ephesians 5, he says, uh, awake uh, thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. 1 Thessalonians 5, he talks about not sleeping as those that are drunk in the night. So that principle of, hey, the Lord is coming, judgment is coming, you know, the end is coming, it's time to wake up. So spiritually, we can, I'm going to stop preaching now. Spiritually, we could take something from that because, hey, if the Lord is coming, it's time to wake up. It's time to stop hitting your spiritual snooze. Jesus is coming. This thing is wrapping up. If it's going to happen in your lifetime, it's happening soon. Uh, it's wrapping up, and uh, it's time to wake up. Don't be drunk on the drink of this world, all right? Now, doctrinally, here's the doctrine. It's the second coming of Christ. It's the tribulation. It's the millennium. Those things are all over the book of Joel. Second coming of Christ, tribulation, millennium. Key phrase. I wrote this on your sheet. Don't have to write it on the board. Key phrase, the day of the Lord. Mentioned five times in the book. Day of the Lord, day of the Lord, day of the Lord. Key idea, second coming of Christ. Key message, the value and importance of repentance before Restoration. Right? Repentance before restoration. Now go to the last book. Go to Joel 3.16. All those 3.16's in the Bible. Got to watch them. Right? Joel 3.16. And Jesus Christ is pictured as, right? Um, I didn't write this on your sheet. Jesus Christ is pictured as our coming deliverer or avenger. Not like, you know, Not defeating Thanos kind of Avenger, but, you know, somebody who really saved the world, right? Uh, Joel 3.16 says, the Lord also shall roar out of Zion. There's your lion of the tribe of Judah and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So there comes this lion to kind of avenge his people, to deliver his people, to rescue his people. So there's Jesus Christ pictured as that coming deliverer, that coming avenger. Now, the breakdown is pretty simple. Uh, Chapter one is the plague of insects. Chapter two into chapter three is the day of the Lord. And the rest of chapter three is the coming kingdom. And we saw the blessing of the kingdom. So let's go back to chapter one. And let's look at some Bible pictures and some important truths in the book of Joel. And this is going to be very heavy on the doctrine uh, to understand where Joel is. So just sit tight, buckle up, take a note, ask me a question at the end if you want. But uh, let's look at first picture, uh, a picture of the great tribulation. That's what chapter one is all about. The great tribulation. That's what this plague of insects is about. I'll show you the context. Look at verse 15. He says, alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. So this whole thing that he's talking about, this plague of insects, is connected to the second coming of Christ. It's connected to this thing called the day of the Lord. Now, we've got to figure out, we've got to figure out who is the day of the Lord connected to. Right? What is the... Um, what is the context of the day of the Lord? Who's it connected to? There's a lot of talk out there, especially if you're a YouTube surfer. you are gonna find lots of people not understanding the day of the Lord and where it goes. So let's see. Obviously, this plague of insects is coming, and the Lord says the day of the Lord is at hand. So this, this plague, this trial, this tribulation is going to be that precursor, that birth pang to Jesus Christ returning. Remember, when he say the day of the Lord, um, the day of the Lord really encompasses the advent and the millennium, right? Because a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So that thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ is the day of the Lord, right? That thousand-year reign is the Lord's day. But who is it applied to? Are we there? Is the church there? Like, what's going on? Let's look at verse 6. Let me give you some things that kind of help you contextualize where this day of the Lord fits, all right? Verse 6. He's talked about the locusts in verse 4, and then he says, for a nation is come up upon my land, as your first clue. Strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion. There's another clue. And without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath, hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. My first clue as to who this applies to is that a nation is come upon God's land, God's land is Israel, with a mouth of a lion, the teeth of a lion. Revelation 13 talks about that antichrist and that beast having the mouth of a lion. So something is connected to that. Look at verse 7 and 12. If you look at verses 7 and 12, here's another clue. You're going to see the emblems of the vine and the fig tree. The vine and the fig tree are emblems of Israel. I'm not going to run all the verses, but they are. Uh, 7. He, this, this nation who's got the, this, the teeth of a lion, he had laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. Look at verse 12. The vine is dried up and the fig tree languisheth. So there we have emblems of Israel being, you know, they're, they're, they're facing this terrible time. Keep going. Verse 8. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. So the prophet tells them to lament like a virgin who's lost or is missing her husband. You read through your Bible, the Bible talks about the virgin daughter of Zion, right? So Israel, as separated from her bridegroom, is described as a virgin, right? So there she is. There's another reference to Israel. Like, Stay with me now. Verses 9 and 13. Look at 9 and 13. The meat offering, verse 9. The drink offering, verse 9. The priests, verse 9. The ministers, verse 9. 13. The priests, verse 13. The ministers of the altar, verse 13. The meat offering, verse 13. The drink offering, verse 13. The house of God. These are all things that are Jewish elements of the Jewish economy. These are not things related to the New Testament church. Yes, you're a believer, priest, but you're not bringing a meat offering. You're not pouring out a drink offering. You're not going to go to some altar. We have no altar. We have a convention. We say, come on down to an old-fashioned altar. You can make an altar anywhere. You can make an altar in your car. You can make an altar in the bathroom. If you have have Jesus Christ and that sacrifice, that that lamb is living in your heart, you can make an altar wherever you want. Just don't think you could sacrifice anything on it, but just sacrifice of praise. I know some people make an altar on top of this big thing, and they want to, you know, right. but we're not doing that, right? So these are Jewish elements in the New Testament church. Verse 11, That's one community strike, right? Right, Father? All right, verse 11. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl. You read through Isaiah and Ezekiel, you see the howling connected to this tribulation time. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. Listen, there's a rebuke to the husbandmen. The ones who were supposed to be keeping the vine. Why, when the wise men came in Matthew chapter 2, was Herod nervous and all Israel with him? Why were they afraid the Messiah was born? Because they knew Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah. They knew that when he came, he was going to bring judgment against the pastors, against the idle shepherds, about the guys who had been devouring the flock. And here he's saying, hey, husbandmen, leaders, elders, the ones that were supposed to be cultivating my people, you need to be ashamed because you didn't get them ready. And that's a rebuke that we could preach that to ourselves. Because, I mean, many, a pastor, an elder, myself included, what are you doing to get God's people ready? Are you cultivating as the vine drying and withering and just languishing? Right? He says, be ashamed, right? You ever read the parable of the householder in Matthew 21? What does he do? He talks about the husbandman. And he says, I, I think he's talking this against us. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, guys. Yeah, he's talking it against you, Right? Uh, verse 15. So all those things said, look at verse 15 now. He says, Alas, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shed it come. The day of the Lord not only is related to Israel, but guys, it's a day of destruction. It's a day of despair. It's not a day of deliverance. It's not a day of hope. It's a day of destruction. Are you looking for a day of destruction? No. No way, I'm, waiting. I'm looking for a day of deliverance. I'm supposed to be looking for that blessed hope. Right? It's different. Now, there are two days. Um, sure, why not? I'll erase this. There are two days that you've got to get straight in your Bible. If you don't get these straight in your Bible, you're going to get sucked into a lot of stupid people. I mean, Bible teachers. All right? Um, right? One is uh, the day of Christ. And the other is the day of the Lord. Things that are different are not the same. The day of Christ is mentioned only in church epistles. The day of Christ has to do with the coming of Jesus Christ for his church, the rapture or review. It's a day that the Bible says that you can... Paul says, I want to rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The day of the Lord is for Israel. All right, big, big difference. Big, big difference. All right, the day of Christ is for the body of Christ. It deals with the rapture, the judgment seat of Christ. It talks about rejoicing in the day of Christ, Philippians 2. It would be looking for that blessed hope, Titus 2. Right, there's a resurrection. I mean, there's all these R's, right? rapture, resurrection, review, rewards, rejoicing, right? Then there's a return. That's, that's what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord is for Israel and the world. This is not the rapture. This is the revelation, the revelation that everybody sees. The Bible says, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall behold him. Your return, he comes in secret, Right, it's in the clouds. He doesn't he doesn't touch down on the earth here. He just appears in the clouds and we meet him in the air. The day of the Lord he puts his feet down on planet earth. And he splits that valley and walks across that eastern gate and takes a seat. And he rules in Jerusalem. It's very, very different. And it's a judgment not on the church here. It's a judgment on Israel. It's a judgment on the wicked world. We're coming back with Jesus Christ at the day of the Lord. We're behind him at the day of the Lord as he comes and judges. You got that? You got to get that difference between those two. If not, the Bible starts to turn into marshmallow fluff on you. Right? Go to Joel chapter 2. Look at verse 1. So more things about the, uh, the day of the Lord. Let's see if this sounds like what you're waiting for. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is at, nigh at hand. A day of darkness... And of gloominess, a day of clouds, and of thick darkness. I'm not looking for darkness, gloominess, clouds, and thick darkness. I'm looking for to be delivered from this present evil world and be taken into his marvelous light. Right? That's what, but that's not what I'm waiting for in the church. Look at 2.11. 2.11. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that ex- executed his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible and who could abide it. Great and very terrible. Does that sound comforting to you? I mean, does that sound like, oh, I can't wait to be terrified, God. I'm looking forward to it. No, when he talks about that in First Thessalonians 4, he says, hey, comfort one another with these words. It's supposed to be a comfort. It's supposed to assuage our grief, and comfort does not make us quake. Now, it's sobering. It makes your knees knock, but deep down, the inner man inside of you is just like, even so come, even so come, even so come, even so come. Even so, come. So that's the difference. Now, let's go to our second picture. So the first picture was the Great Tribulation. We see that depicted in chapter 1. We know who that's for and who that's not for. Alright? Let's go to chapter 2. We're right there. Chapter 2 is a description of the Lord's army. Now here's where you could do a little shouting. Because you're in this description. This is you. Right? Chapter 2 is a description of the Lord's army. Now, 2 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion. And sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. So this trumpet that is blown here is signaling the start of the great tribulation, right? Probably has some overlap with our trumpet, right? So we're, getting, we're hearing a trumpet calling us out. They're hearing a trumpet that's waking them up to something coming. Now, there are two major trumpets, talked about in your Bible, right? Let's look at them. Um, Let's go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. All right. So, two major trumpets spoken about in your Bible. Revelation 4, 1. Let's hold my place in Joel. And We doing okay so far? All right. Am I making any sense so far? (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Revelation four one. Now, we've talked about this before. I don't think this is a new doctrine, but Revelation 2 and 3, prophetically, is the church age. Right? We go from Ephesus, which is the last church that Paul goes to, by the way, uh, and it is the first church talked about in uh, Revelation. And then you go through all the churches, the seven churches, and you end in Laodicea. And then in chapter 4... John, who is a picture of the church, the beloved disciple, we've talked about that for, says, after this, meaning the church age that just preceded him, all the stuff he saw, isn't the the Bible amazing? It's all like put together, all these little fabrics and all these little fibers that create this patchwork quilt. Doctrine. It just, if you really slow down and appreciate it and like turn the microscope and zoom in, all these little fibers connect to form this doctrine, this like this quilt of doctrine that's so strong and so thorough. So John pictures the church. John sees all the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And then he says, After this, I looked, and behold, the door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So there's the trumpet connected to the rapture of the church. At this trumpet, John hears a voice, and we go up. Right? Somebody's going up. A door opens in heaven, and somebody goes up. Okay? Now go to Exodus chapter 19. That first trumpet is connected to the church. That first trumpet is connected to our rapture. That first trumpet that we're talking about here is connected to our catching away. The bride being caught away. All tears forever over in God's eternal day, as the song says. Exodus 19, 14. But there's, Israel has trumpets connected to her also. Not for the rapture, but for the revelation. Exodus 19, 14. And Moses went down... From the mound unto the people, and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Watch it now, be ready against the third day. One thousand, two thousand. He's coming back in the third day. Didn't we do that last week with Hosea? In the third day, he will raise us up, right? He's coming back in that third day, Hosea 6, 1 to 3. Okay, so I got got my bearings now, verse 16, and it come to pass on the third day. Here we go, in the morning. Hello, after the night, in the morning, when the sun rises, okay, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet, exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the Mount and Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it. Okay? Nobody's going up here. God is coming down here. Okay? This is different. We're not going up here. God's descending here. At the rapture, we're ascending here. God is descending. See it? He descended upon it in fire. 2 Thessalonians 1, in flaming fire, He comes at the advent. He doesn't come in fire at the rapture. He's not burning anybody up. He's delivering us in the clouds. But at the advent... He comes, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. Don't look at me strange. Have you not read? Amen. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Amen. That's where that's Amen. the advent, that's the revelation. That's what we're talking about here. There's thunders, there's quakes, there's lightning. Um As the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked exceedingly, watch this now, and when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. So what do we see here? We see the trumpet connected to the revelation. You all thought he was coming down at Olivet first. No, he's coming down at Sinai first. He came down at Sinai in the past. He's coming down at Sinai, and he's going to take that path, and he's going to return, and then he's going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to walk across the Eastern Gate. But he comes down at Sinai like he came down at Sinai in the past. And um, here's another little nugget for you. Moses gets called up when he comes down which is maybe a preview of a post-tribulation rapture of some tribulation saints. That some people, when he's coming down, some people are going up. All right, but not us. We're, all, we're coming with him. But some of those tribulation saints, it looks like, are getting taken out. Moses pictures some of that. All right, for your, for your digestion, for your, for your thinking. All right, uh, so let's go back to Joel. Yeah, you can see why I wrestled the marlin with the book of Joel. Yeah, the book of Joel, three chapters, they'll be at Ralph's by 8 o'clock. Nice. The Lord said, not so fast, son. Don't make me hit your other knee. And I, uh, Joel chapter 2, 1. Now watch this. He says, this trumpet is blown. And then he says at the end of the verse, the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. So this trumpet is signaling the day of the Lord beginning, right? The advent is coming. The kingdom is upon us. The return is imminent. The revelation is coming. Verse 2. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. Watch it now. As the morning spread upon the mountains... The morning is the revelation. The morning is when the sun rises. The morning is when every eye shall behold him, and he splits, because the sun rises in the east, and he comes from the east. He splits the eastern sky, and it says there, um, now look who's with him. A great people and the strong. There hath not ever been the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. So in this morning, the Lord is returning with a great people and a strong people. That's you. Amen. You're in that number. Amen. What is it? Well, let's describe this. How does God describe it? We, we feel so weak and frail, so tired and weary. Let me give you a preview of what you're going to look like in that day. Verse 3 a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth the land as as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, nothing shall escape them. You know what this army's finally going to get to see? This army's finally going to get to see the wicked get their due. You know that? They're finally going to see justice. You watch these crooks, Hunter Biden, you watch these people, you know, just get away with stuff. You watch these people just get away with stuff. You know they're wrong. You know the chicanery is going behind the scenes. You know the wickedness that's on the news is probably a tenth or a millimeter of the wickedness that's going on behind closed doors and among secret circles. And something deep down in your soul is just saying, Lord, how long? Lord, how long? Lord, how long? Right? Like those souls underneath the altar in the book of Revelation. Lord, how long? When are you going to avenge us? When are you going to avenge us? Right there. You're coming down, the Lord's got that fire coming out of his mouth, that sword, and you're right behind him, and you're probably biffing people on the way right behind him. It's going to be unbelievable. And you get to see the United Nations get toppled. You get to see the leaders of this world that shook their fist at God get leveled. Now, we don't rejoice in that today. We try to get them to save today, but to quote my dear friend Jackie Gleason, one of these days, you're going to get yours, right? You're going to shake your fist at God, You're going to create synthetic embryos. You're going to think you don't need God. You're going to try to live forever. One day, you're going to get yours. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. And uh, I think that's spiritual to feel that want that justice. That sounds mean-spirited. You're a wimp. (laughs) Right? Because if you saw unrighteousness, it was this wicked world and the princes of this world that nailed my king to a stick and you don't want to see vengeance you don't want to see justice that wrath has been building up for two thousand years and one day god's going to say that's enough i'm coming down to topple the tower of babel and this time they're not going to rebuild it and that's what we get to be a part of we're a part of that verse four the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses And as horsemen, so shall they run. They're riding on horses. It looks like horses of fire. Didn't you read about Elijah's chariot, 2 Kings chapter 2? It was a chariot of fire. Was it a chariot of fire? Not that chariot of fire. Not the movie. But those horses, those spirits, those chariots of fire, we're riding upon those things. Verse 5 and 6. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains, so shall they leap. I haven't jumped too good in the last few months, but I'm going to leap one day. Amen. Right? Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, for as a strong people set in battle array before their face, the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They're going to be freaked out. Nobody's ever seen an army like this before. Can you picture this? Glorified bodies of the saints. That's right, amen. Nobody's ever seen that before. Wow. The glorious liberty of the sons of God, the manifestation of the sons of God. You ever read in Obadiah? I'm getting ahead of myself. For a few weeks I'll do it. You ever read in Obadiah? The last verse of Obadiah talks about saviors, plural, coming down. Who are they? That's you, just like Christ save your capital S and save yours lowercase lowercase S coming down with Jesus Christ and people are going to be like, what is this? <laughs> they're gonna be freaked out seeing the face of him that you know the lamb and they're gonna see a, a bagillion little Christ coming with him. The horror and the shock and the pain on their faces. They're not just screaming in Revelation 6, hide us from the face of him that's coming. But when He actually comes and splits the sky, there's a million or so little Christ coming with Him that look just like Him. Wow. That's some army. Verse 8. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. It's an army that you can't kill. It's an army that never dies. It's an army that can't be wounded. Folks, you're going to be in a place where you never die. They could point their ballistic missiles at you. It's going to bounce off you like a pine cone, right? Like, boom, what was that? A tickle, right? A nu- they're going to point their nuclear warheads at you and Jesus Christ. We're all going to laugh as he squashes the grapes in the valley <laughs> and the things go up to the bridle the horse's bridle. Verse 10, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Listen, folks, all that imagery, if you know your Bible at all, this is imagery connected with the Advent. This is the army that comes back with Jesus Christ at the end of the Great Tribulation. Verse 11 seals the deal, and the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. Song of Solomon 6, who is this? He talks about the bride as terrible as an army with banners. Amen. That beautiful bride, you think, oh, you know, we think of ourselves in that imagery of like, you know, a female imagery, the bride of Christ. But he says in Song of Solomon 6.10 that you're going to be terrible as an army with banners. You're going to come forth as the morning, Song of Solomon 6.10, 610 clear as the sun because you look just like him, terrible as an army with banners. Does that excite you at all Amen. this is going to happen probably sooner than you think Amen. so are you in the Lord's Army? <laughs> yes sir <laughs> I'm in the Lord's Army you know that's the only part you know about the whole message that is that part right right okay that's another, that's a good picture right let's go to 228 let's give you another picture here I'm just clearing up some doctrinal cookie, cookie birds here 228 here's my last picture before we get into some Big ideas. 228. How about a definition of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? It's talked about in the book of Joel and is absolutely butchered by denominations today. God love them. They mean well. But people waiting for the latter rain and the... These Nazarene churches, Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, they all point a lot of them, and God love them. I not say they don't love the Lord, but 228, they point to this. They say, "Look, there's the Holy Spirit, there it is. Acts chapter two. couldn't be any further from the truth. I'll show you what this is all about. 228 says, "And it shall come to pass afterward, you should underline the word afterward, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh." And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. So some Holy Spirit is poured out. When is this happening? Well, let's, let's, let's orient it here. 23. Notice it says, afterward, in verse 28. After what? 23. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, Amen. the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palm worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. 23 to 27 tells you, this is happening afterward. After the tribulation. This Holy Spirit is poured out after all the bad stuff. When all this good stuff is happening, what good stuff? 25, the waste of the locust has been restored. Now that's a great verse. I know it means that God can restore the things that the enemy took out of your life. I get it. But hey, the land will have been ravaged by this time and God will have restored it by this time and then this Holy Spirit is poured out. Keep reading. 27. I am in the midst of Israel. The physical presence of God is going to be in Jerusalem when this Holy Spirit is being poured out. That wasn't Acts chapter 2. That wasn't 2,000 years ago. That's maybe in a few minutes. I don't know, but that's coming. That's future. Now look at 2.29. And also, upon the servants and upon the handmaids, and in those days will I pour out my spirit. See the little phrase, in those days? Let's see what days he's talking about. Look at chapter 3. Am I going too fast? Nope. Three, one. For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, hello, that's after the tribulation, that's when Israel's being restored, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. The context here is the judgment of the nations after the second advent. Those are the days we're talking about. Go to Matthew 24. You want to see those days? Matthew 24. Those were the days. Matthew 24, 29. You just got to follow the words, people. Bible study is not tricky. Follow the words. Let the Bible define the terms. All right? Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. See that? Right there he says those days are a reference to the tribulation and the second coming. After the tribulation of those days. Okay? Stay with me. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And look at verse 10. I said there was a lot of doctrine today. A lot of just sorting things out, getting things squared away in your mind. Okay, Hebrews 8 is not about your salvation, though it's often preached that way. Hebrews 8 is about a covenant that God makes with a nation Amen. called the New Covenant. Your salvation is never called the covenant. There is nothing about the New Testament church. You could run it. You'll never see Paul talk about a covenant connected with us. Never, ever, ever. It's not the new covenant. You're not a part of the new covenant. It was the new testament in my blood. Not the new covenant. Covenants are for Israel. Those are agreements that he makes with the nation. Keep Look at it. Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Right? He restores Israel After those days, those days were those tribulation times. After those days, He restores them. After those days, He's dwelling in their midst. And after those days, afterward, is when He's pouring out His Spirit. See? Okay. Uh, Look at Hebrews 10.16, just if you want another reference, 10.16. You could write this as a reference next to Hebrews 8. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. That's why prophesying is banned in the millennium, because people are going to have the word of God written in their hearts. Zechariah says if somebody prophesies, they kill them. How can the Bible not be rightly divided? How can you not be a dispensationalist? Go ye into all and preach the gospel to every creature. Somebody preaches in Zechariah, they kill him. I mean, they want to kill you now, but not be, God's not telling them. God's telling people to kill the guy that's prophesying in the millennium. Why don't they need to prophesy in the millennium? Because the law's written in people's hearts. Amen. See how it all starts coming together? <laughs> right? It all starts coming together. Don't help God out. Just let the Bible stand the way it stands. And it'll all sort itself out if you stay with it long enough. Don't know, oh, that means this and this means that. and No, no, no. God knew what he was doing when he wrote the Bible. You know I used the word replenish in Genesis 1. He knew I put the words here and there. He knows what's going on. There will be right? no more Bible studies for us. No, thank God. You probably <laughs> might you actually learn something. Right? Now let's go to Acts chapter 2. Let's go to Pentecost. And let's see what's going on in Pentecost. Let's take it in verse 14. OK But Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, "Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, very Jewish context here, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these, meaning himself and the disciples, are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord Come. See the context? It's the day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, please look at verse number 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Please notice Peter never said this is the fulfillment of Joel. Right. He said this is what Joel was talking about. It's coming. The Holy Spirit, verse 17... The Holy Spirit was not poured out on all flesh here. Right. Joel said it would be poured out on all flesh. It wasn't poured out on all flesh here. Look at verses uh, 19 and 20. None of the celestial wonders that Peter talks about occurred in Acts chapter 2. Right. And the prophet Joel said nothing about tongues in his prophecy. You know that Joel said nothing about tongues. Peter's speaking in tongues so they could understand him. But Joel said nothing about tongues. And notice in 2.21, he says, you call upon the name of the Lord and shall be saved. Now, that salvation is connected to Mount Calvary because the Messiah died on Mount Calvary, right? Just not, right? <laughs> he died on Mount Calvary. Let's go to Joel. Let's go back to Joel. What's the deliverance that Joel is talking about? 2 32. Ready? And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Acts chapter 2, he's talking about being saved. Right? I know there's a national context, but it's connected to Mount Calvary because the Messiah died and he made a way for you to be saved, Israel. Joel too, it's not Mount Calvary. He's talking about somebody is in Mount Zion, somebody's in Jerusalem, and you're going to be delivered, remnant. It's different. So what was Peter doing? Peter was warning the nation about the immediate future of Joel's prophecy. He said, guys, the Messiah could come back imminently. The revelation is imminent. They thought it was imminent. They thought they had maybe three and a half years, right? That's why they emptied their pockets, they sold all their stuff, and they had all things common. They thought it was imminent, that they thought Jesus could be coming very soon. But in Acts chapter 7, that imminent return got displaced by the church age. God gave them John the Baptist, Father, God gave them the Son, God gave them the Holy Spirit and Stephen, and when they stoned Stephen, God said, that's it, and God stopped the clock on Israel, he displaced that imminent return for them, he injected or opened up this thing called the church age that we've been living through for almost 2,000 years now, and as soon as we're out of here, God's going to pick the program right back up there, he's going to like take that church age, you took the church age out of your Bible the first advent and the second advent would be right about three and a half years apart. Or should I say seven years apart, right? With three and He died in the middle of the week, right? He died three and a half years into that first. Daniel, oh man, I look at, I'm looking at glazed donuts here. I'm getting ahead of myself, right? But right, Daniel's 70th week is that last seven years that the Lord would come to earth, right? He comes, he lives three and a half years, he dies in the midst of that week. Right? I think Isaiah and Daniel talk about him dying in the midst of the week, being cut off in the midst of the week. That means there's three and a half years left. So if you took the church age out, you'd have three and a half years left, tribulation, you'd have three and a half years left for that week to be completed and everything to be consummated in God's program. So those disciples, like, Lord, you know, uh, will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts chapter 1, right? He's saying, uh, let's just, you know, let's just, you got a nice house, you got a nice house, let's just, I'm going to move in with you, right? Just, right? They're just going to all move in together and share their stuff because they think, guys, we got just a few years left. And he's saying, hey, this is a precursor. Remember what Joel said? Remember what Joel said? Remember what Joel said? It's coming, guys. And that's what the Jews are hearing. He says, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Men and brethren, what shall we do? It's a message to Israel that the imminent return of the Messiah that you crucified is coming. What do we do? Notice that's the question that they asked Peter. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Nobody asks about getting saved in Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then they were pricked in their heart. They said, what do we do? Right? What did the Philippian jail ask? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's, a, that's Paul's gospel that we're preaching in this age. But that's not what Peter... Peter doesn't understand what's going on right now. Peter's, Peter's thinking Jewish. He's thinking kingdom. He's thinking, we're going to be the head and not the tail. We're going to be the head of the nations again. We're going to crush the Romans. We're going to you know, sit atop. You know, David's going to be reigning with us. It's going to be a political empire. That's what Peter's thinking about. And Joel is, that's what Joel's prophesying about. So Peter's like, hey, it's coming. And that's what he's saying. But they rejected the message. They rejected the message. God gave Israel many opportunities to repent. And when the leaders rejected Jesus Christ for that last time, God went, time out. I'm going to let the dogs have some of the crumbs. (laughs) And that's where we are. The last 2,000 years of church age. But rest assured, this is a limited time, man. This is a limited time. And when God blows that trumpet and catches His bride right away, the Bible's going to go like this. If you had first Advent, second Advent, the church Age in the middle, it's just going to go right like that. That's why when you read your Bible, you've got to remember, the first coming could have been the second coming. Right. I know you have some, of your, some of your brains are on fire right now. But if, if Israel had received the Messiah... That thing would have moved, that thing, that plan would have gone right on trucking. and there would have been no 2000 year church age. You say, what about, I don't know what God, God would have worked us in, but he, he would have worked us in somehow because he prophesied that he'd be a light to the Gentiles. Uh, so now that I've made your head spin, let me just go back to Joel 2, we're there. And let me give you just a couple of big ideas from the book. First big idea from the book, and this is really the biggest big idea from the book. There has to be repentance before there could be restoration. You say, what's the big idea? There has to be repentance before there could be restoration. Joel 2.12 Therefore, now he's just talked about the day of the Lord coming, this army coming. Therefore, because of this, also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments turn unto the lord your god for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil you know what the lord is doing here he is pleading with his wayward people to rend their heart that's what god always wants inward repentance like don't just tear open your phylacteries don't just rent your garments rend your heart break your heart let your heart be broken over your sin that's what God said, right? A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise, he said, right? Is that Isaiah 57 talks about him dwelling in, with a contrite people? Psalm 51 talks about He, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God wants us to be broken over our sin. We're just too hard. It doesn't bother us. It bothers us when it gets us in trouble. Makes us lose something we want. Then we're like Esau, crying crocodile tears. Oh, bless me also, Father, bless me also. But we're not really sorry for our sin like David. David said, I will be sorry, Psalm 38, for my sin. How about some genuine sorrow that your selfishness and my lust and my foolishness cost an innocent man his life, right? Cost the Son of God his life, right? Not a lot of that. Yeah. Not a lot of that preaching. Not a lot of that sentiment. Not a lot. It's just like yawn. Tell me something else that's interesting. Not like the Son of God was crucified, right? Died for your sins, according to the Scripture. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, but he, he died. The sins you're still doing, like he died for those sins. Yeah, right. You're broken up at all about it? We just don't care. Let's just be honest. We just don't care. As long as there's money in our pocket and there's gas in the car and we're okay. Like God, I'll give you a token, amen. But I just don't really care when I step out of line. As long as you don't crack me, I don't really care. When you crack me, then I'll I'll repent. But it's 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 it's, um godly sorrow worketh repentance, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. That's Esau. That's the carnal man, that's the man of the field. He repents and he cries these bitter tears when he realizes the blessing is taken away. But how about a David who said, against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in my sight. And Lord, I'm going to put it in the book of Psalms so that you are clear. If anybody wants to judge you, they know that it's my fault for all this calamity. Right? You know what happens when you rend your heart? Matthew 27 says, when you rend your heart, you find there's a rent veil. When Jesus died on the cross, He rent the veil from top to bottom. Why? To show that you can approach unto a holy God now. You can make those things right now. So when you rend your heart, you find that there's a rent veil. A lot of people don't really get saved and there's a lot of false converts in our midst because nobody ever rent their heart. Nobody ever had any sorrow for their sin. Godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. But the sorrow of this world worketh death. Oh, I want to get saved because my marriage is a mess. And I want to get saved because my life is a mess. And I want to get saved because I want to get off drugs. And I want to get saved because I want to have a good future. That's not biblical salvation. That's Esau. Biblical salvation is I've sinned against God. I'm going to go to hell. I deserve hell. I don't want to go to hell. God did something for me not to go to hell. Ooh, it doesn't mean you have to be crying and wailing on the floor, but it's got to be, I have sinned against God. That's, that's where the real repentance happens, Amen. right? Amen. And it happens in our own life too, right? Right? I thought I put him to sleep, right? right? <laughs> I'm only serious, right? Rend your heart, rend your heart. Because when you rend your heart, you find that there's a sacrifice. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain, <laughs> Right, dear dying thief, that precious blood shall never lose its power. Right, so you find when you break, when your heart is broken like a thief on a cross, you know what you find out? There's a bleeding Savior who made a way for you. And you know what happens if you go to Isaiah 64? You know what happens when Israel rends her heart? When Israel rends her heart? God rends the heavens. When Israel rends her heart, Jesus Christ rends the heavens and comes down. Isaiah 64 1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. What is this second advent? As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things, which we look not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither have the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him, that waiteth for him. So when Israel rends her hearts, when Israel repents, The heavens split and Jesus Christ comes down. A rent heart leads to rent heavens. And in your own life, when your heart is broken, it's like God came back down to fellowship with you or something again. Now let me give you the second big idea. So there has to be repentance before there can be restoration. That's the big idea. You got to repent if you want something restored. You can't fix it. You can't put some Gorilla Glue on it, right? You can't just, you know, duct tape it together. You got to repent. Got to repent before God. And then he could split the heavens. Then he can come down. Then he can make it right. Literally for Israel, but spiritually for us. There's no restoration before that ugly, old Bible word repentance takes place. Say, Pat, how do I fix this? Repent. How do I fix that? Repent. How do I fix me? Repent. Repent, repent, repent. Repentance is all messed up now. You got people now that like, you know, don't ever want to say the word repentance. Repentance. It's grace, 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 never say the word repent, even though Paul says the word repent, and I know Paul was our apostle, he talks a lot about repentance, not to be repented of, it's a good thing, doesn't mean, right, well, I don't want to get into it, but you see people, they make such a, they split hairs, well, this gospel tract says repentance in it, I don't know about that, it means, what did Paul preach? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. At some point, you've got to realize I've sinned against God. I've got to turn to Him and turn from my own stupidity. It's got to be there. I don't have to list every sin I did. That's silly. That's not what God's asking you to do. I'm not confessing here. I was blasphemous last week and I had looked with lust on Thursday and I stole that candy bar on Tuesday. That's not what you need to get saved, but you need to repent before God. Amen. I've sinned against God. God I've been going this way I need to start going this way I need to get to the way Jesus Christ or I'm going to split hell like a bullet that's repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ that's what Paul preached in Acts chapter 20 that he's telling the church at Ephesus can't get more grace 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 than that can't get more New Testament church than that now the second big idea coming off the soapbox All right, let's go back to Joel I don't even know I'm in Proverbs I don't know how I'm even over there you're in Joel, right? I'm in Proverbs. Joel 3.16. Oh, no, this is, this is the fruit of that repentance. What a day that will be for that nation when they do repent. Joel 3.16. The Lord also shall roar to Zion, utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. And it shall come to pass in that day, second coming, that the mountains shall drop down new wine, new wine, not hooch, new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord. You read about that in Ezekiel 3, 47. And shall water the valley of Shittim, Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness. There the enemies get in theirs for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall dwell forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation for I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. See, what do they get? Number one, verse 17, they get fellowship restored. Jesus is in their midst physically in their midst. You know what you get when you repent and make things right? Fellowship restored. Number two, desolation is restored. Milk and new wine and healing streams abound in verse 18. You know what you get when you make things right with God? The things you lost, God's able to put them back. The joy and the peace and the love and the relationships and the shattered life, God builds that back. Number three, Peace is restored. Verse 20, the enemies are put down so Israel can dwell safely in her land. You know what happens when you make things right with God? Peace is restored. Yes, Amen. And finally, number four, holiness is restored. Verse 21, he says, I cleanse their blood. Their hands are filthy. I cleanse them. You know what God does for you? He cleanses you, right? With that washing of water by the Word. Not to save your soul again, but to wash this dirty world off of you. What a day that will be when you repent before the Lord. You get those blessings. Now here's my second big idea. It's right there in Joel 3. We're not going to turn anywhere else. Joel 3.14 Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. See, what's the second big idea? We all have a decision to make. We all have a decision to make. Literally, literally, what's this about? Literally, people, nations, verse 2. You see who these people are? Verse 2 says, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's literally what's transpiring here. That's literally what he's talking about in Joel 3. All these nations, all these people in that valley being decided Matthew 25 talks about Jesus Christ judging the nations when He sits on the throne of His glory and He separates the sheep and the goats. It looks like that's what's happening in that valley of decision. Whose decision? That's Christ's decision in Joel 3. But we all got a decision to make. Everybody's got a decision to make. If you don't make that decision, God will make it for you. Because not making the decision is making the decision. So I need to get saved, but I'm going to think about it. You made the decision, right? Well, I need to make something right with God, but maybe tomorrow. You're making a decision. We've all got to make a decision, or God's going to make the decision for you. So don't make the wrong decision. <laughs> you know, um, I'm closing my Bible. You know, old Pilate, that pagan political punk? He said, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? You guys are like Pavlovian dogs. I close the Bible, everybody's like, zoom, zoom, it's hysterical. It's great, right? Like I ring a bell, ding, and they salivate. But anyway, Pilate said, what shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? He had to make a decision. I don't know what Pilate did. Pilate tried to wash his hands of it. And I think he's in hell right now, still trying to wash those hands. I think Dante writes about that in the Inferno. He writes about a man, one of the circles of hell, He's washing his hands, and it's Pilate, you know. still trying to wash that guilt like Lady Macbeth. Out, out, damaged spot, you know, trying to wash that guilt off their hands. You can't wash that. you got to make the decision now. Make it right now. So the question for us is, what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? If you're watching from home and you're not saved, you need to get saved. Don't put it off another day. If the Holy Spirit's shown you that you're lost, make it right. And if you're sitting here today under the sound of my voice at home and something's not right, make it right. Don't put it off. Repent before God. Say, Lord, help me with this and just go forward with Him. Don't try to put it off because not making a decision is a decision and it's the wrong one. Let's pray.